0: Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Heather Massey is a senior lecturer in the Extreme Environments Research Group at the University of Portsmouth. Heather has done extensive work into the human response to cold water, both the physical and mental effects, and her areas of research include thermal, altitude, and survival physiology. She's also an amazing ocean swimmer, having swum the English Channel and around Jersey, among other things, and has a podcast called Humans in Extremes, interviewing extraordinary guests who have done extraordinary activities in extreme environmental conditions. I started by asking Heather if she'd always been an ocean swimmer.
1: I've been swimming since I was a kid and uh, my dad uh, had a little dinghy when we were younger and we were always climbing in and out of it and he taught us to sail and because we were going a bit further offshore he wanted to make sure that we we could swim Uh, so we we just always swam really and I got a bit bored by being in the pool all the time and thought, well, actually, I want to be outdoors, swimming or sailing. So that's where my love of swimming's really come from, is just my parents, really, and and their their outdoor activities.
0: And have you always lived near the coast?
1: Uh, Yeah, for the majority of my life I have. I used to live in the northwest of England, uh, very close to Liverpool, and there were some local beaches and rivers uh, there that we used to sail and swim in. Um, I moved away uh, to to Loughborough, uh, which is very in the centre of the UK, uh, for a couple of years to do a degree and then moved back down to Portsmouth on the south coast of the UK, which is right by a beach. So I'm really fortunate that I've been able to swim outdoors for the vast majority of my life, really.
0: I know that a lot of your work is in cold water. Do you call yourself a, a cold water swimmer? I mean, the ocean's never that warm in the UK, I wouldn't imagine.
1: Um, I don't cold water. So I just I'm a, a, an outdoor swimmer. Um, I don't really sort of pigeon self pigeon uh, pigeonhole myself into any particular type of swimmer. I just like to swim outdoors, uh, preferably in water that's less than a normal pool. But uh, it doesn't have to be uh, ice cold. It doesn't have to be uh, cold or, or cool. It's just outdoors.
0: And now you work in the Extreme Environments Laboratory, which is like that, that's a pretty cool name for a lab. What's that all about?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool name. Um, well, well, basically, we uh, we work in the area of what happens to people's bodies when they get hot cold or low in oxygen primarily and we just study the the body the physiology of the body in those environments um and that that's kind of where we get the name extreme environments from is that yeah that we go to extremes of heat and extremes of cold and extremes of altitude so we kind of thought calling ourselves the mildly uncomfortable lab was a little bit inappropriate (laughs) so we had to go a little bit further than that
0: (laughs) and and you've done a lot of work on the effect of cold water on humans and like really cold ice water on on humans Maybe maybe if we, we go through it, what happens when you first get into really cold water?
1: Okay, so when we initially go into cold water, we start to develop something called the cold shock response, and that results from rapidly cooling the skin. And that cold shock response uh, involves that hyperventilation, that that rapid breathing and inspiratory gasp that you in, that you get immediately as you go into the cold water. So you'll immediately go, <gasps> and then start to hyperventilate a little bit. That also increases your heart rate and blood pressure as well. So in in someone that's healthy, it's just it's. Mildly uncomfortable and can make you panic a little bit if you uh, aren't used to that experience. But in people with underlying conditions, some some cardiac conditions, some heart conditions, um, those responses can be uh, can be uh, could be fatal. So we really try to study what the effects these uh, this response has on the body on initial immersion. Is there a temperature
0: where that kicks in? Does it only happen at really low temperatures or is is there some sort of graduated response?
1: it's really a graduated response and it really it peaks at about uh, fi- uh, 10 to 15 degree water temperature but the, the we still see people that experience cold sh- the cold shock response at about 20 degrees so that's just well it's about four or five degrees colder than normal pool temperature um and once you get beyond the 10 degree uh, below 10 degrees in in terms of water temperature you're going to maximally um, experience that cold shock response. Now, there are people who've been in cold water repeatedly that will have a, a much reduced cold shock response. So it's a response that you can what we call habituate or get used to. Um, and that response is driven both physiologically by the body just um in terms of reduced heart rate re- reduced uh, inspiratory gasp and and rapid breathing but also you come to recognize that this response is going to happen to you and so psychologically you're more prepared for it um so it's it becomes easier to cope with
0: so the so the panic associated with it is is a is a big part of the the problem with the cold shock response is it
1: yeah we've we've done a little bit of research in this area and and particularly if you are are anxious you can actually exacerbate the cold shock response and also prolong it as well and conversely if you are prepared for that cold shock response you can lessen that cold shock response because of that preparedness so there are things you can do sort of psychological skills training to make yourself more prepared for going into cold water and part of that is what cold water swimmers do all the time is that they know that this cold shock response is going to happen they recognize it and realize that it's not a threat and so uh, that cold shock response is able to diminish whereas actually panicking uh, if you don't recognize that response can actually exacerbate the the uh, the response itself. So is it
0: I guess it highly depends on circumstance but is it better to acclimatize yourself before getting into the water take your time to get in in which case you're exposing your body to even more cold especially if it's really cold that that's probably not very good for you or is it better to just jump in?
1: From a safety point of view it's always better to go in slower and in a controlled fashion, rather than jumping into cold water, because that inspiratory gasp that you get uh, on immersion in cold water, that it can be that inspiratory gasp can be two, three, possibly four litres, depending on the, the size of the body. Uh, if you're a big, tall person, then you going to have a bigger uh, lung volume. So you're going to be inspiring more air if your airway is not above water, is it, sorry, if your airway is below water level and you take that inspiratory gasp, that's going, that's going to fill your lungs with water and, and that could pre- precipitate drowning. So it's really important that you have that inspiratory gasp and also the, the, the rapid breathing response while your airway is clear of the water. So we always say from a safety perspective to go in slowly, go in a controlled fashion, Get over that that rapid breathing, so that you're able to talk in full sentences before you start swimming. Uh, just really from a, a safety perspective, um, that we we don't want to encourage people to be diving into cold water, uh, and uh, causing people to have uh, problems as a consequence.
0: So, what are some of the other things that happen to your body when you're in cold water, and 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 I guess it gets worse the colder you get.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we've got over that cold shock response. Um, and if you stay in the water for a little bit longer, you'll actually feel fine you'll feel quite normal. You'll be able to, um, swim, talk to people in full sentences, uh, quite coherently. But as you gradually, uh, extend that period of time in the water, you're going to go from cooling the skin to cooling the superficial, superficial nerves and muscles. And as that starts to, uh, happen, you'll start to experience stiffness in the joints and fingers, uh, and and then eventually uh, within uh, the arms as well, which might mean that you're not able to properly coordinate a swimming stroke. Uh, quite often, swimmers talk about claw hand, where their fingers start to splay, or they're unable to move their hands very well uh, to orientate their swimming stroke, and and that can really start to to lead to something called. Um, Uh, swim failure and that can start to mean that you go from swimming in a very efficient effective manner to swimming almost trying to swim vertically Uh, and uh, in someone that's not able to to maintain their airway above uh, the water level that again is is uh, not going to be a a good outcome for them so that's a potential uh, problem Um, and so what a lot of uh, outdoor swimmers uh, do is uh, they and and are they do tend to be a little bit more um, uh, well uh, developed in terms of having a little bit of body fat and that body fat will help to insulate that uh, those muscles and nerves which are very close to the surface of the uh, of the skin particularly in the arms and that will help to prevent or reduce the rate of cooling that's occurring in those in those areas so that should help to prevent things like that swim failure from occurring
0: oh that's fascinating so you might end up going a bit vertical and then that also just compounds the problem because you're you're, you're much less efficient yeah. you're in the water for longer
1: yeah yeah you you obviously the, the more the more vertical you get the more drag you create so that the less effective your strokes are going to be and you'll start to fatigue very quickly because the muscles are very cold uh, and if you're unable to coordinate a swim stroke to keep your head above water that can have some uh, that that can cause you that can cause
0: drowning and so, under your uh, nice extra layer of uh, of fat, I guess you still need to be pretty strong, don't you? Because you want to hold your stroke together.
1: Yeah, definitely, you still need to be uh, very strong. But the, but being having cold muscles will reduce the uh, the strength, uh, the power that those muscles can create. Um, so being strong is 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 good, but be aware that actually. Getting into that position where you, you are developing cold muscles will mean that, that even if you are a strong person, doesn't mean that you'll be able to um, maintain a good enough swimming stroke. So it's having that awareness that you are becoming cold is, is absolutely
0: key. I like this. So if you're training for a cold water swim and you've got half an hour, you shouldn't go to the gym. You should go and have a milkshake. This is, this is your expert advice. <laughs>
1: I think there is a reason why a lot of outdoor swimmers have a little bit of extra body fat, and that is primarily because it's actually help. It's very helpful to have that extra, extra insulating layer.
0: And 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 mentally, um, I, I hear stories of. I'm not. I'm not quite sure what the word would be, but just maybe not trusting what a swimmer is saying about themselves. Can a swimmer trust their own body in these situations?
1: That's a very good point you make. And we've done a little bit of research into this and particularly looking at prolonged cold water swims where not only we get skin cooling, we get muscle cooling, but we get deep body cooling. And we uh, we regularly monitor deep body temperature uh, whilst we're doing these cold swims. And we ask the swimmers how cold they feel. And when they're getting to when they're getting to the point where we would withdraw them because of their deep body temperature being too cold they're still saying they're comfortable and so for us that's a big warning sign that actually swimmers are not very aware of of how cold they're getting
0: and so let's say now you're warming up what should you do when you're warming up and what's the after drop
1: Okay, so if I deal with the afterdrop first, so the afterdrop is continued cooling once you've uh, exited the water. Now, the reason for that uh, afterdrop or continued cooling is the fact that while you were in the water, you were exercising and you were producing heat. And that heat was offsetting the rate of cooling that was occurring because of being in cold water. Now, the tissues of your body are still cold when you get out of the cold water but you've actually stopped that heat production from the exercise. So the reason you have that after drop or continued cooling is because you have, you still have all of that cooling stimulus occurring and none of the heat production from the exercise. So you carry on cooling to the point where um, uh, your your, uh, your rewarming method is having an impact. Um, so it's really important when you get out of cold water to get shelter, Get dry and change into to warm uh, into warm and dry clothes as quickly as you can, um, and the the method of rewarming. Uh, the, there are numbers of different of methods of rewarming, some of which I would uh, err people uh, away from, and some which are, would be preferred. And I say this uh, quite deliberately because when lots of people start to talk about the, the comfort of being in a, in, um, a jacuzzi or, or spa bath, a warm spa bath, when they've been in cold water, it's clearly very comforting and can rewarm you very quickly. Um, and we use those uh, methods to rewarm people, but we are also measuring deep body temperature as well. And there are some issues with uh, rewarming collapse that can occur if you rewarm someone too quickly uh, using, um, uh, using hot tubs or, or, sp- or warm water spas. So we recommend that you get dry, dressed and changed and do some light exercise to increase that internal heat production that's occurring.
0: That's, that's really interesting. So this, this would occur not just in really cold water, but I guess technically in any water that's less than body temperature. So this is something you should possibly be aware of, even if you're just having a swim at the beach on the weekend.
1: Yeah, it's it it, it depends how long you're in for. If you're getting to the point where your your deep body temperature is starting to cool, uh, yeah, you you want to make sure that you get get changed and into warm, dry clothing. Uh, and be, not be tempted to go into the the hot tub uh, just because of that potential for a rewarming collapse. Um, and it's not it's not just um, it, it's not necessarily the uh, it, it's more about the trauma that occurs when you when you faint uh, that can be a particular problem as well. So we know that um, when you go into a hot tub, your 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 body is cold and all the blood is very uh, in the centre of your body. Now, as you rewarm in that hot tub, what's happening is you're going to have uh, uh, your, your blood is then going to be moved to the uh, periphery of the body. And that's fine while you're in the hot tub, because the hot tub, the water, the squeeze of the water while you're in the hot tub is maintaining your blood pressure. But as soon as you stand up out of that hot tub and so you're going from an environment where your blood pressure is is being supported by the water um, uh, and you're you're also quite horizontal. You're going to a vertical position where you don't have that water squeeze to protect your blood pressure, and there's a potential there for you to to faint, and it's that uh, is what happens to you when you faint that's that's particularly problematic uh, in terms of uh, traumatic injury that that's why we don't want we suggest that people don't go in hot tubs.
0: What's the coldest you've swum in?
1: Uh, I've done an ice k. Uh, and wow. I, yes. I went to the uh, second world ice swimming champs, which were held in, um, in, uh, in, in Austria, uh, ooh, what, three, four years ago. So, and the coldest water, that was really cold. The water was two degrees and the air temperature was minus 14. So it's actually warmer in the water, which was bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but the coldest I of in is 0.2. And yeah. Didn't really enjoy that.
0: Uh, no, I don't imagine so. So how did I mean? How did how did you feel? Did you? I imagine it takes longer to swim a k in in water of that temperature than it does just in normal uh, environments. How did you feel?
1: Much much longer to swim a k in cold water than it would be normally because of the fatigue that's caused by by the the rapid cooling of the muscles. Um, I felt dreadful. I felt absolutely awful. And I have no ambition to do do an ice cave based on how I felt from that. (laughs) So (laughs) absolutely no ambition. But it was really interesting to see the variability in people's response to being in ice cold water, from people that really suffered far worse than I did, to people that barely looked like they'd they'd been in cold water so it was really quite an interesting, uh, from a scientist point of view, it was quite an interesting um, observation to make.
0: You must have loved that <laughs> Yeah, I, I just wish that I
1: hadn't been swimming and I could have just been taking everybody's temperatures just to see what it was like <laughs>
0: So we've talked about some of these uh, tough effects, but there's certainly a lot of anecdotal stories about uh, cold water being good for you. You hear, you hear stories coming out of Scandinavia, people jumping into cold water or the therapeutic effects of, of cold water. And I know that that's uh, a big part of some of, some of your work. Uh, how much truth is there to that?
1: Well, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, that there are therapeutic effects of swimming in cold water. And I think at the moment, that is the level of evidence, the scientific evidence that we're at. It doesn't mean that people have not benefited. What it means is that science has not caught up yet and the studies have not been done. So uh, we have a, a case study that we've reported on where uh, a lady with um a quite severe depression, um, actually went through a coached uh, season of open water swimming and gradually she was able to reduce her medication for depression. It's a case study, it's a reported case study and there are a number of different people who have also uh, case studies of different um, uh, medical conditions as well so we we know of uh, someone with crohns we know of people with migraine attacks that have also uh, said that they've benefited from uh, outdoor swimming or cold water swimming and it's not that it's not that it doesn't happen is we just don't have the the science or the the rigor of the research behind it to find out is this going to happen in lots of people? Is this a one-off? Um, and what 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 was the cause of that? Was it the cold water itself? Was it the um, Was it the group people were with? Was it the challenge? Was it the goal setting that went on? Uh, was it the having a cup of coffee or tea with a piece of cake afterwards and a chat that that helped? We don't know what the cause of any change was at the moment.
0: I guess in some sense a lot of um uh, mental health is 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 a physical thing as well but it's it's really interesting how it can affect physical and mental health in this way.
1: Yeah definitely uh, some forms of depression are inflammatory based and not all form uh, not all forms of depression are but some are and um th- there has been some working hypotheses around the fact that cold water immersion may be used to reduce inflammatory responses. Um and and if you then precipitate that out, uh, if we immerse somebody in cold water that has an inflammatory form of depression, and we can reduce that inflammation, then in theory, the the depression may be reduced or the depressive symptoms may be reduced. But this is all very hypothetical at the moment.
0: It's interesting. And I guess you can see a path to treatment there. I mean, cold water might be more fun than Voltaren, but there are medical treatments for anti-inflammatories or for inflammatory issues.
1: Yes, that there are there are medical treatments that have a very high level of scientific rigor behind them, um, some of which has been published, some of which hasn't, and we're not at that level yet. We have. Uh, what we'd say the very basic level, which is anecdotal reports, which we're starting to accumulate into some research uh, looking at those anecdotal reports. What we then need to do are those exploratory studies, which um, uh, look at uh, getting people that have a particular uh, condition we think might benefit getting them through uh, outdoor swimming programs and then we can start to build up those uh, randomized control trials which are the highest level of or one of the higher levels of uh, research design and quite a lot of the drug companies will have undertaken a number of randomized control trials on their potential drugs to see the benefit or effect of those drugs before they can then be licensed. So we're a long way off being able to say that outdoor swimming can cure whatever condition you're, you're suggesting or is a treatment for. But we're starting along gathering the bits and bobs of information that we need to start to move towards having a uh, uh, people take part in in research trials.
0: I can see that could be really difficult to create these longitudinal studies, so many factors involved as well. But even just your collection of data now in in certain individuals, I guess, spurs the field along, doesn't it?
1: Definitely. It's, it's a starting point. It's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's definitely a starting point. Um, all research projects have to start somewhere. And yes, it does take time and money for these projects to develop. Um, because we're, what we're advocating is an exercise, which is taken outdoors, um, we need to look for different funding avenues that than uh, drug companies would offer.
0: And, and so one of the studies you did that had lots of uh, data, which I found really interesting, was looking at the minimum water temperature for, for marathon swimming. So, so tell me about that. What happened?
1: Someone's been doing their research, have not they? <laughs> so, yes, we were asked by the uh, governing body for uh, swimming, so that's FINA, uh, to develop some uh, water temperature limits for the outdoor marathon swim. Uh, primarily because they wanted to make sure that the scientific rationale behind that, uh, the the figures that they were using, uh, was was secure, um, and so that that's why we undertook the test. And a number of we had a, a number of volunteers come into the lab, and repeatedly swim for approximately two hours. These these guys were pretty well-trained, uh, athletes. So they'd be swimming 10 K in about two hours, 15. So they're only just slower than, than say the elite athletes that might be doing it in one hour, 50 or two hours. And we got them to progressively swim in colder and colder water until we had to keep pulling them out. And then, then we basically stopped. Um, just to see what water temperature was safe for them to be swimming in and what the characteristics of the swimmers were so that we could say what was a safe limit uh, for the, the swimmers that um, would be swimming in elite uh, marathon swimming
0: events. And uh, what, what is the magic temperature?
1: That's a good point, And it's a good discussion point because the tests that we undertook were on um, uh, swimmers swimming in swimming costumes. And so the temperature that we're suggesting uh, for that would be 18 to 20 degrees, primarily because the type of athlete that's involved in these uh, very elite long distance uh, races are exceptionally lean. So very, very similar to your 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 elite pool swimmers. And that because they have virtually no body fat on them, uh, they will cool very rapidly in, in water that, um, that, that outdoor swimmers may be quite comfortable in for very long periods of time. These guys are not people that uh, swim uh, the English Channel or uh, any other uh, ocean swim. These guys have uh, much less body fat on them. And so they need to. In order to be safe and for well uh, for athlete welfare, we need to have temperatures between eighteen and twenty for them to be uh, to be uh, able to conduct their their swim safely. Now, subsequently, FINA have decided, in order that they can compete in cooler water, that they should be wearing wetsuits. So that's the equivalent of adding extra insulation to the body. Do you find a difference between
0: male and female?
1: um now the in, the difference is primarily in body fatness and so actually quite a f- it, it, it depending on the um depending on the the event actually men and women uh, can't necessarily compete in terms of speed on equal terms there are lots of fast female swimmers but in terms of the fact that they're able to endure or do very long endurance swims they can certainly um they can certainly compete on equal terms with men there um primarily because women do tend to have more body fat naturally than than males do so actually yet yeah, women are in a pretty good position to be able to undertake long distance open water swims
0: i've often wondered that whether there's some kind of crossover point and we're talking elite athletes we're not talking about me going out swimming but if there's some crossover point where where women actually become quicker essentially because they can stay in the water for longer
1: uh yeah and it primarily depends on the body fatness of the individual and this and then this swimming speed and the heat production that they can uh, produce so there's a couple of factors that are really quite key so it's how much heat can you produce and also the insulation that you can uh, that, that you have to retain that heat storage
0: So you've, you've set up a podcast as well. I want to ask you about that called Humans in Extremes. And so it's not just cold water that, that you're studying. You're, you're talking about altitude. You're talking about all sorts of things. And the, the podcast I listened to was one about altitude and Viagra treatment, which I which I thought was pretty interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Tell me about your podcast and, and some of these different areas that you study and then communicate about.
1: So uh, my podcast, well, it came really from the idea that um, we in the lab meet lots of really interesting people with some interesting queries and our students don't necessarily get to see all of that. So I thought, well, how can we communicate to the students that we see these interesting people and we tell these interesting people the same things that our students perceive. Uh, we tell them in the, you know, perceive from our, our what they term boring lectures. Um And we we give them exactly the same advice, yet they go and do these extraordinary things. So I really wanted to inspire my students to uh, take more interest in the topic that they're studying, but also maybe to inspire a few to do some weird and wacky things, but do them safely. (laughs) <laughs> so that's where it kind of came from and um, yeah I've just really enjoyed chatting to people so I chatted to dr. Matt Wilkes um, about his career in medicine and his PhD which he's been doing and that's where the um, the altitude and Viagra st- uh, study came about because he uh, he was actually working on everest as part of a research group and they were looking at um, they were looking at ways to um, They were looking at ways to maintain skin blood flow, and one of the things that uh, is used to maintain peripheral skin blood flow or skin blood flow, very uh, yeah skin blood flow, is to uh, is to use Viagra, and that was the original use for Viagra before they realised that it had um, uh, other effects. Um, So yeah, he we we spent a good hour chatting, most of it not. not uh, included in the final podcast unfortunately but it most of it ended up on the cutting room floor but yeah it's it's been uh, it's been quite an eye-opener talking to different people so I've talked about uh, someone that walked the rabbit proof fence um the entire length of it in the middle of this in, in the middle of the Australian summer so you guys will know a bit more about it than I did um I've talked to uh, ice swimmers as well. So people that uh, regularly uh, do ice miles. So they've been uh, an extreme ice miles. Uh, who else have I talked to? Um, uh, I, uh, oh, I've recently talked to a, a channel swimmer as well. And um it's, it's been an an amazing experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, talk, talk to somebody that's uh, run the Marathon de Saab and who's run a, an Arctic marathon as well. So these people are pretty extraordinary and they do some amazing things. But when you speak to them, they, they've they really done their homework on the event. And so it's actually really interesting for my students to see that these guys have done quite a lot of homework and, and have learned about these extreme environments.
0: And I guess that's something that, that they've all got in common is it like a because you'd have to you'd have to be pretty single minded wouldn't you uh,
1: bordering on stubborn yes you have <laughs> to be exceptionally single minded very focused i think is the word and committed oh. that that was the, the, probably the common thread throughout all of these uh podcasts is the level of commitment that people have to their
0: goal and this wasn't in the show notes but viagra probably wouldn't be very useful for cold water swimming would it If that uh, thins your blood, uh, I don't know, I was just trying to think it through as you were talking, you know, your blood's carrying your heat around, but maybe thin blood's not very useful for that.
1: Um, Swimmers, in fact, if you're a cold water acclimatised, will actually start to uh, move the uh, skin blood flow to the center of the body more rapidly so the vessels at the surface of the skin vasoconstrict uh more quickly so it'd be an interesting study to do but i'm not it wouldn't have any benefit uh because what you you're exactly right you would open if if it did work it would uh it would bring the the blood closer to the surface of the skin and increase the rate of, co- of cooling as well
0: yeah Warm water swimming, but that's not really a thing. So <laughs> it might be good for. but well, well I don't
1: know. It, there's some people would say that swimming in a swimming pool was warm water swimming i guess so
0: so it could be a performance well, enhancing drug who knows a, well it a is heated, you
1: know. <laughs> a heated water i don't know whether it would be performance enhancing uh purely because when you're exercising your muscles are normally well perfused with blood so the exercising muscles would be uh, uh, would have a good skin but would have a good blood flow actually would be interesting to see if if you were taking viagra would actually that Blood flow uh, be moved to the skin as opposed to the working muscle. That would be an that would be the interesting question.
0: Well, I look forward to your grant proposal. I think it'd be (laughs) interesting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Maybe. (laughs) Maybe yeah.
0: There's probably a few other avenues to chase first, but you never know. And so you're an open water swimmer. Where did you where did you swim this morning? What's uh, and what's on your agenda for the future? Are you uh, do do you swim every morning? Do you do you have events in mind? Uh, how do you think about swimming?
1: Uh, well, swimming for me is my is my wake up. I really enjoy it first thing in the morning. Um, I live in Portsmouth near Portsmouth in the UK, and I'm lucky that I live very close, within walking distance from a beach, so I can swim. Most mornings when it's uh, conducive, when it's safe to do so, really. Um, So I'll go most mornings uh, for a swim, about an hour-long swim, uh, shorter if it's in cold water uh, or really cold water. Um, So that's really what my my swims all about I've I, yeah and I've just I, I've kind of taken it to another level over the last few years but I've really just in just gone from just enjoying the swimming to increasing my training as I've got a little bit older I've moved away from the team sports which were causing me lots of injuries and just gone back to doing more swimming which I find doesn't have the same injury problems uh, as I've had uh, as, as team sport players um so yeah, I've just I've taken from being a competitive soccer and rugby player to to being more uh, being doing more training in the pool uh, and and outdoors. So um, that's really where my swimming's gone. Uh, so yeah, I've I've done quite a few swims uh, in the UK. I swam the English Channel last year, oh, wow. uh, and I've done some I've done some Channel relays as well. Uh, as well as things like swimming around Jersey. We we had hoped this year to swim what's called the North Channel and do that as a relay team, and that's between Northern Ireland and Scotland, and it's approximately the same distance as the English Channel, so around 21 uh, miles, but uh, rougher seas, colder water, and bigger jellyfish but wow. unfortunately covid hit and we weren't able to travel so that's that's back on the cards for next year and other than that i've not made any further goals because i'd really like to get this one in the bag first
0: but at least you've been able to keep your training up
1: yeah that that's been a, a real godsend and for me that's it's it's becoming important to have that routine and doing that exercise which i don't have the same outlets for that I used to have so I'm not in the same rugby teams or the same soccer teams anymore so actually the community that I'm in within the uh, within outdoor swimming is becoming an important part of my uh, social life
0: yeah and certainly lower impact than rugby that you mentioned <laughs> yeah <thing. laughs> Um, you mentioned uh, Portsmouth before, and I meant to uh, ask you earlier. I think it was it was your PhD or or some of your early work you were doing with Navy and and life vests and uh, naval exposure to cold water. What were the findings out of that?
1: Yeah, well, I used to work for the Institute of Naval Medicine uh, when I was much younger. And we did a whole heap of, of work uh, ranging from fitness standards to the uh, the, the clothing that uh, Navy personnel wore to check that it was safe for them to use. So uh, the, there's lots and lots of research projects that we undertook around um, uh, around the, the, the work that sorry, that around the, the the clothing that people needed to wear in order to stay safe. Um, so it's it's primarily around that, that that my research focused when with the military.
0: So what's next? Where do you see some of this work going?
1: Well, I really like to progress the the work in uh, in swimming for mental health. Uh, I see this is a an area that is massively under researched, um, and so. We just like to continue along the track that we're on, trying to get to the level that we uh, that, that that as I was talking about earlier, those randomised control trials, so that we can start to see if uh, open water swimming has uh, improvements to ment- people's mental health, um, uh, and get it on a, a, a par with some of the uh, other research that's done with drug companies. I think that's really key in terms of sort of research. I'm keen that both the safety message gets across and I'm keen that there's a balance as well, that, that, the, there are always going to be, there are always going to be safety issues with going into cold water and that cold water swimming is not for everyone. Um, and particularly people with uh, cardiac conditions with, uh, with, you know, with those sorts of conditions, it's really important that if, if they, if people do have, uh, you know, conditions that like that, that they need to go to their their uh, doctor first to be checked out to check that actually they can go swimming in very cold water before they go swimming. I think also the safety aspect is is paramount because we can't hope to find uh, or hope to establish if. Um, open water swimming has any effect on mental health if we don't address the safety side. So making sure that people are safe when they go into cold water is absolutely key and that, uh, then the enjoyment can happen.
0: I've certainly noticed from afar that UK wild swimming seems to be called as a really big, it seems to be on the increase. So there seems to be a lot of people in the UK and, and Northern Europe doing a lot of open water and outdoor swimming. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's
0: the new park run, right? And
1: uh, yeah, uh, and it, it's it's great. It's good to see because in general, we're we're becoming a nation of uh, couch potatoes, and so actually getting people to exercise is absolutely key. I think also getting people outdoors and taking care of their environment is absolutely key, and maintaining or actually improving their environment is key, um, but we're keen also to get that safety message across. Every year in the UK, we have between four and 600 deaths, water-related deaths every year. Half of those people do never intend to go into cold water. Uh, And so there's a general lack of understanding still, even though we are an island nation and all those things, uh, there's still a lack of understanding and awareness of how to behave and act around cold water um, and those that are expecting to go in may not have been either properly dressed wearing life jackets or uh, or, or or aware of how um uh, of how powerful or how overwhelming cold water can be so the i uh, I don't want to put a downer on anybody's enjoyment of being in cold water if they're doing so in a safe environment with uh, people that have knowledge about how, how cold, uh, uh, how cold makes your body feel. or uh, and in a, you know, in benign ish conditions where we're looking at uh, a swim club going out for their swimming session with people looking out for each other. It's the, um, it's the unsafe uh, swimming uh, in water, which is uh, dangerous to swim in. And I'm really key that people have become aware that, of where they should and shouldn't swim and times they should and shouldn't swim.
0: So things like not swimming by yourself, being aware of the prevailing conditions that you're going into and the temperature and how long you've been in the water as well, maybe wearing a watch or having some way of knowing how long you've been in there.
1: Absolutely. And I think also it's key that people recognise how they're going to get out before they get in. Yeah, it's just from the point of view that uh, if you are having to climb out and you know that you've been in for a couple of hours and you're feeling pretty weak, uh, have you got the, the physical strength to be able to climb up that ladder or have you got the physical strength to get you out of the water? So making sure that you have a good exit before you get in is absolutely
0: key. thank you very much to dr heather massey from the extreme environments research group at the university of portsmouth for that fascinating chat i really enjoyed that if you'd like any more information on anything you've heard in this episode if you'd like to get in touch with heather if you'd like to tune into a podcast then get over to our website at www.thepodpodcast.net that's www.thepodpodcast.net and if you're interested in rating the show or leaving a comment on your podcast catcher of choice then please feel free to do that too Thanks again to Heather and thanks again for listening in. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on the pod.